Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who we are can be such a fluid concept that we so often think of as static. And it is something that can change so much based on where we are and who else we are around. And it is something that feels very concrete often when we are raised in or living long-term in abusive or traumatic homes or situations. And then when we get out of those, it seems like a fairy tale and we lose a grasp on who we are. And it becomes somewhat of an identity crisis. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Naomi, and this is Mosaic in Progress. For a really long time, I defined myself by the definition that had been given to me by my abusers. Who I was was one of their daughters, and the trio of us were known almost as a unit, and people would talk about us, the the girls, and I'm not going to use my last name, uh, but the, uh, we'll just say Smith, the Smith girls, and uh, I was kind of known as that part of a unit, that we were kind of all the same, and people kind of thought of us as one person in a sense. Um, we even at one point uh, in college had a guy propose to the three of us and basically said that it didn't matter which one that any of us would be good and didn't see us for our individual personalities or who we were as individuals, that we were just all copies of the same, which is very much not true. My sisters and I are all very different people. But I was viewed that way for a very long time in my life, and... In addition to that, I was viewed as someone who was weak, someone who was sickly, unhealthy, someone who was weak in spirit that just gave over and uh, was not really thought of as strong or stubborn or willful in any way. Um... Except when things happened that my parents didn't like, in those cases, then I suddenly became stubborn and strong-willed. But as a personality type, the narrative that I was given was that I was kind of dowdy and 
small and weak and insignificant. And I would make someone a good wife someday. And I would be a good mother someday. And that was kind of the beginning and end of who I was. Um, I was given my belief system without a choice in the matter and or any education outside of it and I was given that as my identity that I was a Christian. My parents were very right-wing and conservative and I was given that as my political identity without any objective information in opposition. And as I look back on it now and I see so many people who were raised like me changing their belief systems, I think it's interesting because I always was brought up with this idea that people who leave the church, who leave their belief systems, leave their, you know, political ideology they were raised with, it's out of ignorance, it's out of stubbornness or willfulness or pride or laziness or what have you and I think it's so interesting that my belief systems changed when I was presented with different facts. I was never presented the ideologies that my parents were so opposed to in any kind of factual or unbiased light and I realize it's hard to present ideas that you are opposed to in an unbiased light, but I was never exposed to the ideas from another perspective. And I remember when I started my deconstruction process, as I call it, um, when I started examining the beliefs that I had been raised with, I remember telling myself, if this is true, if all of this is true, if it is, if the Bible is the infallible word of God, then it will stand up to questioning. It will stand up to other perspectives. It will be able to withstand any questioning because that's what truth is. You can't look at it and you might question it initially but the questioning will not win the truth will always win against the questioning and so I was very confident in my ability to question what I had believed because I felt it necessary to question it but I also had an extreme confidence in the Bible and in the belief system that I had always held and I knew that if it was true no questions would be able to call it to call the integrity of it into question that any questions I came up with any test I put it to it would it would win it would hold up. It's kind of like doing an experiment with science and you're trying to prove something. Well, if 
your theory is accurate, if it's true, then it doesn't matter how many tests you put it to, it'll hold up. It's kind of the same thing. And it is interesting to me that so many people who were raised with one ideology and one viewpoint and discouraged from learning other viewpoints, that it is their parents and the people who were around them as they were younger who tell them that they have left the truth, that they have sought out falsities or comforting lies. And I especially heard it reference to kids going off to college and how they just weren't mature enough to be able to know. And I think it's ironic that we look at the typical college-age kids, and I say we, meaning people in the church, mostly, they look at them as spiritually unable to discern truth and easily deceived, but somehow spiritually mature enough to get married and start a family and raise children. And those two things are at odds with each other. And anyone who tells you differently is disingenuous and believing what they want to believe out of their own convenience. Because you cannot be so gullible and immature that you will believe whatever spiritual lies you're told, but also be mature enough to choose a partner for the rest of your life and raise children to be good, responsible adults. They, they don't go together. One must not be true. If one of them is true, then the other must not be true. They have an inverse relationship with truth. But I digress. I think it's interesting that so many people raised in very strict evangelical conservative homes change their beliefs so quickly when they go off to college. And I think part of it is because they've never been exposed to a different ideology before. Because that's how most evangelical parents, especially homeschool evangelical parents, raise their children is with only their beliefs and very little to no exposure to outside belief systems and ideologies. They intentionally keep their children from them because they don't want them being exposed to differing thoughts, differing belief systems. 
out of fear that the devil may take a stronghold. So they're not allowed to read books that have different ideologies without strict supervision. And I think that the narrative becomes that college ruins kids when the reality of the situation is that they develop a more informed point of view and they just don't agree with yours. They were steeped in yours. They know it front and back, cover to cover, all of the ins and outs of it. And when exposed to a differing viewpoint, they realize yours doesn't hold water. You have built a house of cards. And I think that the modern evangelical church and all of the Christian nationalism that goes along with it is a house of cards. It is a belief system built on a power structure of abuse. It is a belief system that is very loosely based on the Bible. And it is a belief system that was designed to subjugate minorities and the poor. And, and women, that's kind of, that almost goes without saying, it's just kind of hand in hand. You can't have evangelical Christianity without misogyny. And it's hard for people to be raised in a system that subjugates them, that infantilizes them that disenfranchises them and then find another system of thought or belief that empowers them and not run away from their former belief system as fast as they can possibly go it would take a lot of work to stay in it and this is why you hear people in the church talking about and two college kids like you have to you have to stay in it you have to stay in the word you have to stay in church because as soon as another ideology comes along that says hey maybe you're not stupid hey maybe you do know what you're doing hey maybe you do know a little bit about life maybe you can make your own decisions maybe you don't need a man to tell you what to do then the empowerment is almost intoxicating. So whichever belief system it is that they stumble upon first, that's usually the one they run to. However, this is not to say that People necessarily just latch on to whatever the first thing is that empowers them. But quite often that's sometimes the case. But there comes this kind of identity crisis when you change your belief systems. 
And when you first allow yourself to be who you are and not who you were always told that you were or that you should be. And for me, it came down even to my style, the style of clothes that I wore. I had created, without realizing it, all these different personas based on the situations that I had to be in that had elements of me in them, but none of them were really me. And when I first started going to therapy and working with a therapist and I started kind of exploring more about who I was because that was one of the first things we kind of delved into. She pointed out to me that I was almost wearing costumes instead of clothes. And I was like, yeah, I think you're kind of right. And I remember writing out in my diary all these different people who I felt like I was. It was like nine different people and I gave them all names and I printed out pictures that were similar to the style that that person wore and described their personality and she was like, this isn't healthy. This isn't you. Figure out what your style is. And it was so much harder than I ever would have anticipated it to be to figure out what my own style was. At 26 years old. Because I'd never really been allowed to wear what I wanted to wear and what I liked. My mother would come into my room and take clothes out of my closet or drawers and throw them away. As an adult, as a, an adult who could vote and buy my own insurance and had my own car that I drove and had a job and she would come in and take my clothes out and throw them away or donate them somewhere and she would tell me it was immodest or it just wasn't a nice thing to wear or it attracted too much or you know fill in the blank whatever excuse she <laughs> didn't allow me as an adult to have control over my own wardrobe and the things that I really liked I was mocked for them Especially hats. I always loved hats and my dad made fun of me pretty much every time I wore a hat. Um, and so developing my own style was really hard because I'd never been allowed to explore it and figure out what I really liked. I just wore whatever got me accepted. Whether it was by my parents or my sisters or... The 4-H kids, whatever social circle we were in, whatever kept me from being bullied or ridiculed or lectured, that became my style. And it's 
been interesting to fully just embrace the styles that I like as an adult when I never had the opportunity to before and sometimes I kind of I feel like a fraud because I'm going back to like late 80s early 90s grunge punk kind of style which I always liked and just never had the opportunity to really utilize um except for a very brief period in my early teens that quickly got shut down and so you kind of get this disingenuous feeling like is this really who I am or am I just you know reacting to something am I just trying to create something that was never really real and you get that feeling about so many things, your belief systems, your political ideologies, your everything. You're like, is this really who I am or am I just reacting? Because you never got a solid footing of who you really were. Because who you were was who someone told you to be. It was never really you. It was just a script that was handed to you. This is who you are. This is who you have to be. And when you start autonomously developing who you are, it can feel like you're a fraud a lot. And even if you don't feel like you're a fraud currently, sometimes you feel like, was I a fraud the whole rest of my life? And you have this kind of battle going on between like past you and current you and like who's the real me. And it can become a huge crisis, a struggle. And it can be hard to be gentle with yourself. And love yourself fully, both the current you and the past you who did whatever they had to do to survive. And there was so much that I did to survive that I just look back on with shame. Because part of me surviving was that I had to be a warrior for Christ. Which meant fighting people who were around me. Who didn't believe like me. And I just went scorched earth on so many friendships that did not deserve what I did to them. I, I can't count how many friendships I ended because I found out that they listened to contemporary Christian music. And that was sin, because the Bible doesn't allow instrumental music with worship. That's how I was raised, and I literally ended friendships over friends listening to contemporary Christian music. And my parents encouraged me to do that. And in fact, before the encouragement happened, it was a commandment. You know, you can't be friends with people who listen to that. 
You can't hang around people who do that, who listen to that, who believe like that, who think like that, who talk like that, who dress like that, you fill in the blank, whatever. There was such a strict monitoring of my friendships. And if anyone was slightly out of line, I had to end the friendship. And if they forced me to end the friendship against my will and I didn't want to, then the abuse came down on me. Then it was me getting yelled at and kept up until 2 o'clock in the morning, being told why I was so wrong and praying over me about God convicting my heart for my rebellious and sinful ways. And so my survival mechanism became ending the friendships myself. I didn't have to wait. I knew the red flags to look for. And so I ended them myself. I'd pick the fights without being prompted. I'd end the friendships myself. And... I look back at the people who I walked away from and <laughs> so few of them were actually people who the friendship needed to end. And I think I must be a horrible person in most people's memories because of what I did. And... There's not really any undoing that. There's no going back. There's no fixing that. And it's kind of one of those, like, how do you recover from that things? Like, I was the kid who ended friendships over religion. Like, I know people who I quit being friends with because they were gay. Because the, the music. Because... They wore Jinkos. I, it, outside of the church now, it continuously boggles my mind the nitpickiness that exists within it and how, how much they distance themselves. From everything in the world. From even the smallest appearance of worldliness. From their perception. And. I look at my life now. And I look at my life as it was. And they are unrecognizable as the same person. And I realize that. And I realize that's why so many people from my past have distanced themselves from me because I'm not who they thought I was. I'm not even who I thought I was. And that's a weird realization to look in the mirror and see someone else. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think a lot of people view it as a bad thing. I think a lot of people view it very judgmentally. Or with sadness, grief. I think we're supposed to grow into different people. 
I think for some of us, that just happens to look a lot more drastic because as we were trying to develop into our own person, we were stopped. And for a lot of us, it can look a lot like Julia Roberts in Runaway Bride when she's trying to figure out how she likes her eggs because she just molded herself into whatever each guy wanted her to be and just became whatever they wanted from her. And growing up in an abusive home is a lot like that, except that you don't really have a choice in the matter. It's not a people-pleasing, I'm trying to be what somebody wants me to be kind of scenario. It's literally survival. And it can be things as mundane as how you like your eggs, what color you like to wear, what you like to drink. And so as an adult, I kind of had this like huge identity crisis. Like, do I like to drink because I know my parents didn't want me to? Or do I like to drink because I like drinking? Do I like the alcohol? Do I actually enjoy this? Was I avoiding it because they wanted me to or because I actually think it's a bad idea? Because you develop these narratives around why you do or don't do certain things to justify it and make it your own. And they're not necessarily a true narrative. They're not necessarily yours. Sometimes they are. But a lot of times it's just the reasoning that you develop in your own mind. So it's not just, I don't do this because I'm not allowed to, or I do this because I'm forced to. And when all of the expectations and the rules and the judgments and everything that was keeping you doing what you were, quote, supposed to do, falls away, then you're left with this very confused reality where you're not really sure who you are or why you do what you do. And it's scary. And I don't think people necessarily talk about that aspect of it enough. Just figuring out exactly who you are and not feeling like a fraud every second of your life for being different than you used to be. So if you are someone who is learning who you are for the first time, if you're someone who's creating who you are for the first time, I will share with you an epiphany that I had in my early days of therapy. You can be whatever you want to be. And I never had anyone tell me that growing up. And when I realized that it was true as an adult, I realized that it doesn't mean what people always think of. It doesn't mean you can be president or a doctor or a rocket scientist famous actor because that's where people's mind goes when you say that 
it means you can be kind. You can be loving. You can be strong. You can be assertive. You can have boundaries. You can be a people pleaser. You can be weak. You can give in. You can compromise. You can be diplomatic. You can be fair. You can be honest. You can steal. You can lie. Who you are is entirely up to you. And that is the beauty of being alive. You get to make the choice of who you are. No one can decide it for you. It's not anything that is predetermined. You choose your life. You choose who you are. And that is a truly empowering thought. I hope you will join me next week on the podcast as we both continue to work on our mosaic in progress. In the meantime, please follow me wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Audible, anywhere you listen to podcasts, we're there. We're also on social media, Facebook and Instagram as Mosaic in Progress. And if you have suggestions for something you'd like to hear us talk about, you can email me at mosaicinprogress at gmail.com. Hope you all have a wonderful week. Choose who you are every day. No one can choose it for you.